listeners, and welcome to the Downright Upright Show, the place to go to hear out loud and proud what Minnesotans are thinking. And I am your host today, Philip Anthony. I'm so excited that you have chosen to join us today, and I'm hoping you are all doing fantabulous. Are you guys doing fantabulous? Doing very well. We are. (laughs) On each podcast, I will first be introducing our guest, sharing a short bio of their lives and careers, and ending with their personal opinions of the current events that influence all of our daily lives as Minnesotans and as Americans. And my special guests today, and yes, I did say guests, plural, are both professors at the University of Minnesota. Sumanth Gopinath is an associate professor of music theory and the author of the book, The Ringtone Dialectic. I pronounced that right, right, Sumanth? Mm-hmm. Perfect. His life partner, Beth Hartman, has a doctorate in anthropology and a lecturer in writing studies. Hmm, yeah. Okie dokie. They are also members of the Twin Cities Band named the Gated Community, and a band that mixes folk, bluegrass, and country with a raw rock edge. Welcome to you both, and thank you for chatting with us at the Downright Upright show today. Thank, thank you, you so much for, thank having, you for us. having us. Oh, you're welcome. Um, first of all, I love music. You guys know that. I used to be in a band myself back in yeah. the day when mm-hmm. I was young. Um, tell me how much fun it is to be in that band. Do you guys enjoy the... Uh, it's- it's so much fun. Yeah. We yeah. love it. Yeah. You guys look like you have a lot of fun on the stage there. It is. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I'm great. I, I, I love music, and um, I got to come see you guys again. I saw you a couple times, but I'm going to make it my business this time once my schedule frees up to uh, come see you. That'd be great. Uh, I'd like to start talking briefly about the gated community, because that's something that you both participated together. Mm-hmm. And how did the band form, and where can our listeners go to find out more information about upcoming shows? So let's start with Beth. How did the band form? Well, I will turn that over to Sumanth. He's been he's the band leader, I guess I can say. Oh, okay, and okay. he started he started the band. I'm actually one of the newer members, although I've now been in the group for I want to say six years. Oh, okay. um, but yeah, I will I will actually let Sumanth uh, yeah, take the lead on this one. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the band, the Gated Community, started in uh, January 2006. So it goes well, back to <laughs> really me <So> too. <laughs> it goes back, uh, you know, fair way. Um, it was formed in my apartment on the West Bank uh, uh, of the in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis, and okay. um, the idea was that I wanted to continue making music in the kind of country bluegrass rock orbit that I had been making with a previous band when I was in New Haven, Connecticut, that band was called the things themselves. And, um, and I had been thinking about a good name for the band and, um, I was influenced by this activist group called billionaires for Bush, where they would show up to political protests, (laughs) critical of, you know, the attempt at that time to, start the Iraq war or Afghanistan war or, or protesting other things from that, uh, the, that era. And, um, um, and they would sort of have this ironic, funny character where they'd be like dressed up in like monopoly man hats and, and tuxedos. (laughs) And they would sort of be yelling and making fun of the protesters. And it was so clear that they were on the side of the protesters and was kind of funny. And so, 
that idea sort of inspired the gated community, which is sounds like a space for elite people, you know, who have. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Right. The name is like when I think of the gated community, I think everybody's, you know, Hello, darling. Exactly. And so so the idea was that it was, you know, kind of ironic and it was a sort of joke and that, in fact, the band is not a pro-gated community band in any way. Um, But um, I remember when uh, the radio host, uh, Phil Nussbaum, who does the Bluegrass show on Saturdays on 88.5, introduced us for a show and he he totally got it and he said he introduced us by saying the gated community they live where you can't go and I thought, <laughs> that was so great oh, <laughs> it was really so funny cool so how yeah. did how did you did you have to coax miss beth into um joining the group or was it pretty much a you know inevitable um that's a good question because Beth and I have been together for almost 14 years now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we, we're together exactly the same amount of time as I am with Bjorn. That's yeah, funny. exactly. Yeah. And maybe you can talk about well, that. Well, yeah, I don't feel like I, was, I didn't need to be coaxed. There were some personnel changes and there were some needs in the band for um, singers, especially. So I'm trained as a singer. I think more it was um, learning a different style of music, learning different ways to sing. And really, I still feel like I'm very much in that process. I have to to jump in here because uh, I know (laughs) Beth is more in the style of opera. Is that right? Right, Because I remember you came to church one day because Bjorn needed a, a, a soprano to sing this piece. And you were just amazing. Oh, I just have thank to say, you. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, just it, it, the church just lit up when you sang. Oh. It was just absolutely beautiful. And so when I heard you singing, like country kind of bluegrass, it was it was kind of it was bizarre for me because it shows your versatility. Oh, wow, thanks. I, well, I think I'm getting there. No, it is a very you are there. You, you sing amazing. I you, appreciate you can that. Sing any genre. You're like huh. Pat Benatar to me. Oh, Remember wow. Remember she started yeah. off as an uh, opera singer. And oh, that's right. Yeah. And she moved into rock and roll and she was able to you know, transition really easy. Mm. Easily, you mm. know. Mm. So, mm. and you did that. Well, um, I appreciate that uh, praise yeah. very much. It did. I, I still feel like I'm learning, but I think that's a great place to be in general, that there, we can always keep learning and, um, and, and, figuring out new and different ways to do things. And I think singing, singing is very much that. And, um, and it's been really enjoyable for me to get to learn more about country music and, and find that I actually like some of it. I grew up in rural Montana. Um, I remember the kind of Garth Brook era of country and it didn't really speak to me. (laughs) And so I had these ideas about country, but now have, have, um, been exposed to, uh, to earlier country music and um and well and of course like dolly parton who's a, a big um yeah, yeah she's just wonderful so i grew up in new york so <laughs> i remember this could make you, you guys laugh i don't i don't know if i've ever told you this but every time they tried to bring when i was growing up every time they tried to bring a country station uh, uh you know forward and you know try to promote it 
it would last a couple of months and stop because urban and pop music were the big things and Latin, you know, we had a lot, in, a lot of Puerto Ricans and so we uh-huh. had a lot of salsa stations and, and merengue and stuff like that. So those genres of music were definitely overpowering the country set, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I grew up not really knowing much country. I mean, I... We did have the you know the crossover people like the, that you would know like Dolly and um, John Denver maybe John Denver mm-hmm. uh, what's his name uh, Glenn Campbell Glenn Campbell people like that those Campbell. you know they were able to tr- to cross those those lines but um, now it's just country is just you know permeating the the, the entire country it's it does yeah don't you mm-hmm. agree with that? yeah. Uh, is your music gravitating towards country or do you think you you have a better blend of it? Uh, probably, I would say over the years it's moved away from sort of country and bluegrass. It started very much oriented in those genres, but um, but there's always an edge of that to every song to some extent. In part, the way I sing, which you know came from learning about and imitating country and bluegrass singers right, yeah. It, yeah i don't speak that way but i grew up in louisiana <laughs> yeah, and so yeah so part of that. yeah so part of the story is you know i get to kind of not only play southern but also get access to things in my own accent that are there but sort of repressed mm-hmm. you know and i remember when i was a kid so i moved to louisiana when i was nine and my brother was seven and when we moved there, we made this pact with each other that we were not going to talk like them. And so we retained our Midwestern accents. We were okay. born in the sort of south suburbs of Chicago. And that's more or less how I talk. But I do say y'all, and there are these edges to my accent that are actually influenced by the fact that I grew up in the south and lived there for so long. My parents still live there. And then I went to college mm-hmm. in Texas. I've spent a lot of my time in the south, and I love the south. Yeah. And so... Um, but does one need to have, I guess, a southern accent, quote-unquote? I mean, because when I think of Shania Twain, for example, she's Canadian, yeah, and she was a country singer, or there was a singer growing up. Well, you guys would never know who he is. If you know, I'll pass out. But <laughs> his name was Eddie Rabbit. Oh, I know Eddie Rabbit. He was yeah. born in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, where I was born. You know, he right. had a Brooklyn accent and he sang country music. So I, I don't, I don't know. I guess you could, you know, be from anywhere, and, and you know, you can. And in fact, the older history of country music shows that part of the sort of variety of styles of singing more than it would develop later into the 20th century. So to be specific here, the biggest site for country music in the early 20th century was Chicago. They used to have a thing called the WLS WLS Barn Dance, and it had people from all over the place. There were lots of Kentuckians and Appalachians, and a lot of the sound of country music often is influenced by how Appalachian whites and and black singers sang and performed. I love your voice, by the way. Oh, thanks. It's just you have it's different, don't you think, Beth? Well, you, I, yeah, you're, I'm, you're, I'm a little biased, but I also very much like his <laughs> voice. <laughs> yeah, he has, a, he has that uh, the je ne sais quoi to his voice. Oh, okay. thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, uh, the last thing I want to ask you about this band. Now, uh, knowing, that, knowing the two of you like I do, um, does your music have any socially conscious... Conscien- con- sorry, socially conscience? conscious? Conscious? 
Yeah. yeah. I think that works. Yeah. Socially conscious um, messages that you want to talk about, or would you rather not? <laughs> I mean, I, I think. It's, yeah. I would say yes. I, um, I mean, Sumat can speak Pick more to this. That just think um, of the top of your head that you would want to tell the. the oh, the well, we don't. I. I think FEMA trailer is probably one that comes to mind. Um, What's it called? FEMA trailer. FEMA. And it's FEMA. Yeah. Like the, the organization? Federal right. Emergency Management yes. Authority. Or I mean, that's one that, that comes to my mind immediately. Okay. Uh, and um, Sumant uh, writes the songs for our band and can speak more to what how that song emerged. But And, and I would say in general, the just a lot of the songs have... Um, have a, like a, a socially conscious element to them, but are also open to interpretation as well. Um, at least right. that's that's my read of what of what um, Sumanth produces, and and I think that's um, I think that's a really nice element of the of the group too, and that uh, people from a lot of different backgrounds, the music can resonate with them, and then also um, to a certain extent, people can be able to create their own sort of interpretations and meanings but um that said yeah fema trailer i don't know it's a month if you want to talk about that sure so fema trailer (laughs) was written not long after hurricane katrina and um well the band was formed not long after hurricane katrina and my my parents went through that it was 2005 and uh in september right Mm -hmm. excuse me and um and what happened was that my parents went through it and they, they didn't have flooding, but a lot of their friends did. They had to house another family and live with them for months. Um, they had roofing damage and they had, you know, then my brother went down there early on to help out. I was just starting my professorship at the University of Minnesota and I couldn't get away until the Christmas break. And then when I did, um, I saw the devastation, you know, firsthand. It was really stunning and horrifying. I remember that. Yeah, yeah it was... People were on top. I, the, the, the vivid, you know, picture that I painted in my brain from that time was people on the roof, you yeah. know, trying to get somebody to rescue them. They were stuck up there in the sun and um, no food. And uh, it was just... Yeah, it's horrific. And when I went, the flooding had receded, but you could still see things like cars in trees. There's along the highway, there was a car in a tree. And then I went um, to the lower ninth ward and saw, you know, I kind of did disaster tourism and felt a little awkward about it. But I but it was important to see that, you know, these were houses that were just wiped clean away. I mean, there was nothing there. In some cases, and in other cases, they would have markings that would show, you know, that there were dead bodies found in them because the city had kind of gone through and or FEMA had done it. I, I don't know who did that work, but basically went through and marked like what was found. And it was just it was shocking to see that. I mean, I'd never seen anything. And so the message of the song was. Well, so the message of the song um, is someone who's angry that they're still living in a FEMA trailer. Nine, it was sort of okay. nine months out from Katrina. I see the you know, Yeah, the chorus is, and I can't believe it's nine months later and, I, and I'm still here pissing in a FEMA trailer. Um, and so, and, and so the... <laughs> thanks. And it's, it's, a, it's sort of energetic, it's sort of funny, but it's also angry, and it, it, it sort of weaves in a lot of 
personal Louisiana references from when I grew up. You, you were born, raised? Well, not born. Not there, born, but, but raised there. And I, I think of that as my home. I mean, I... Sure. Uh, my my parents still live there, so I, I go. We could just went back there, you know, a month when ago. When I was in my twenties, you know, like, see, I I can't even put myself in your category. You guys are just ten ten stories above me. Um, I wrote songs that were very, you know, um, I can give you an example. I wrote a song about I was in the in my car. And my friend changed the channel on the radio, and I got mad, and I said, "Don't mess with my music." And I, I wrote a song song. about riding in a car and don't touch my radio. See the difference in the, my songs were very light fluff, you know, fluff pop from the 80s kind of stuff. And your, your songs are probably a lot more socially conscious. No. I did it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They try to be. And in full disclosure, I have to say, Sumanth and Beth are both personal friends of mine. So I know a little bit about you, but we never really talked about your career is at length. That's so true. That's true. That a little bit because I, I know you as friends, and we don't talk about that nonsense. You know, that's, <laughs> that's I don't true. Talk about my job is well, I try not to anyway. You know? We love your your stories from well, from being flight attendant. They're pretty amazing. <laughs> you should. So, um, oh, but before we even get into that, um, at the taping of this show. Um, Yesterday, actually, it happened. Yesterday was the uh, massacre at Highland Park, Illinois. Um, I think six people were killed. Uh, seven, they said, oh, uh, they, as it, of today. It was seven as of today. Okay, thank you for that. Um, and multiple other people injured. And and you guys, you know, I, I have a... There are certain issues that when I talk about them, they upset me. I cry. I get upset. And now I'm here with you, and um, I, I really want to know what you feel um, about what we can do. Um, I know what I know what I would do, okay. But I'm just Philip, you know, Philip Anthony, and just a resident of of Minnesota. Um, I don't have any power whatsoever. What can we do? What can the powers that be do to change this? From, stop this from happening every freaking week. Start with right. who wants to start with? I don't want to, yeah. Beth. Sure. I mean, uh, it does feel um, insurmountable in some ways. Just given um, it is, and it's um, you're absolutely right. Every time it happens, and just oh my God. feeling Today like I was watching before you came, and I was hoping that I wasn't still crying because it would have come out in my voice. But I was just so sick. This lady lady, young woman, uh, her mother was dying in front of, got shot, and she's sitting there, uh, you know, and, and she had to leave her mother, because she said, because I thought they were going to shoot me next, so mm-hmm. she ran, and she left her mother dying, and, you know, I, I, I don't know, you have to be, you have to have a, a, a blood made of ice water, not to feel something, yeah, and it's... to want to change this from, you know, this phenomena. What can we exactly. do? Exactly. What do you I'm, think? Uh, wow. I should not finish that. Well, I was just going to say it's horrifying and that we need to take down the NRA. Um, and I think, um, you know, mobilizing what about, what mobilizing about? at the state level, too, trying to get more uh, legislation. AR-15s, what's your opinion? Oh, they should absolutely be banned. I mean, need? nobody you needs those. You but know what I say? I hate to break it, because this is a subject that really bothers me. You know, I know people, my father-in-law loves guns, but he hunts with the gun. 
you know, and he lives in a rural part of the state where the, he needs a gun in case some nut comes try to kill him. Right? I get it. I get it. I get it. But I he's not it. hunting with an AR-15. I get it. Yeah. And you know yeah. what you need. You know what you need an AR-15 for. If you have 25 people breaking into your house and you have to sh- mow them down. It's a military weapon. Happen? It's a military weapon, right? I mean, that's well, a thing. Yeah. So who needs a hundred rounds of ammunition to stop a, a burglar? I mean, I really don't get unless you're like a terrible shot. I hate to joke about this, but well, we also know that the statistics don't bear out that even having any gun actually is particularly yeah, successful in stopping the bad guys. That's mm-hmm. not what happens. Mm-hmm. Usually, people use guns to kill themselves. And then, or they use them to kill other people. I mean, that's... And the good guy with the uh, gun thing is BS, because I'll tell you something. There were a lot of good guys with guns at that parade. Yeah. And they, the guy was on the roof. Well, it's out of context. people down. Exactly. How are you going to protect... If you're in this classroom, even if you had the gun... Let's just suppose I'm a teacher, I have a gun. Oh, gosh. You know, (laughs) The guy's going to come and mow, mow the kids. What are you going to do in the intro? Oh, where's my guy to go find my gun? You know, it doesn't yeah. work like that. I mean, yeah, we're the, teachers, right? Yeah. And, you know, we're absolutely opposed to arming teachers. And most teachers will tell you that they're opposed to it because for exactly that reason. And I heard this interview and I was mentioning this the other day um, to someone else. But the teacher said this and I thought it was really wise. Uh, this was after the Uvalde shooting, you know, that... Um, you know, every day I have to go into the class and I have to see, like, my goal is to see the best in my students. I want to see the best in them because that brings out the best in them. And if I'm going in there treating them like suspects, that is incompatible with my job. I can't do that and also think about how to lift these students up and get them That's to the next really place. Good point. I never mm-hmm. even went to that, went there because you're a teacher. You both of you are teachers, and you know the dynamic in that classroom. You're, you know, the, the I don't know. It's just I, I, every time I talk about it, I get very upset. This is some. This is a subject that really, really, and I, I guess I can bring it up now because you know I. I always said in my when I did my intro to this podcast, I talked about I lost my father at a very young age. And he was shot, killed, Mm. by a person who should never have had a gun. Never. And I went through my life without a dad because of that. So it it, it is a very, very, uh, hits a nerve with me. And so if anybody out there thinks this is okay that our children are getting shot, that our parents, our friends are getting shot, just because your so-called Second Amendment right which they forget the part about the well-regulated militia part, which is listed. Exactly. It says it right there. It it, and yeah. to me, a militia is, is, is it's the army or any right. organized uh, military force. Right. We don't talk about that. We, we just talk about it. We need to have guns and too bad for you, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's and to think about solutions and I obviously... I mean, I'm very much for more gun regulation. There are people on the left who, in response to all the things that are going on now, are starting to become pro-gun and have leftist gun clubs. And that stuff scares me. I think that, you know, you'll I think progressives will never win in that context. I think that's I am also pro nonviolence. So I um, that's my general position on that stuff. But I will say that, um, you know, there are lots of 
in addition to banning things like AR-15s or developing gun buyback programs or, you know, intensifying background checks. I mean, there, like people Australia. have thought about, yeah, Australia did an amazing job managing that. Yeah. Um, but that, in addition, there are sort of really basic common sense things that could happen. And for example, with this case, the shooter in Highland Park had already been uh, alerted the police had already been alerted to of his presence and issues. They had reclaimed he had bought a bunch of knives and they they actually were the police went and took them away from him. He was threatened, because he threatened be, to kill his family to kill his family. And it's like if that's a person, that's the kind of person that there should just be a registry like, a, you know, you you were going to kill your family. The cop, cops know that this should just be an autumn should be. OK, let's go investigate this person. Why are you buying 100, 100 rounds of ammunition? Or why the Avaldi uh, shooter as well? Yeah, he bought how many? It's like a thousand rounds. And people yeah. said that they were didn't, scared of him, so there was also yeah. was concerns about him before. And they didn't they? Ask, I mean, here I am. I'm I'm, I'm a, in a gun, you know, shop. I need three thousand rounds of ammunition. What do you need 3,000 rounds of ammunition for? Follow-up question going to be, if you were a normal human being with a brain, what are you going to do with 3,000 rounds? Are you being attacked by a militia? Is somebody coming after you? Yeah. Maybe we should report this. Yeah. Because you're in danger. What do you need 3,000? See, this would would be a normal country would do this. Yeah. Yeah. But the reason they're not, because the, the, the belief that you should have the right to you know, protect your property at all costs, including from fantasies that don't exist, um, as well as have the right to insurrection. Because I think the other piece of this that's really important is this is a story about... going into the territory that I think that's what it's all about. I think it's about that too. And I think that it's, it's, it permits fascism in America, which is growing. And those are the kinds of things that really scare me. I mean, when they use the word militia to describe groups of vigilantes and organized groups of, of people, often typically white, who are, um, you know, collecting all sorts of military grade weapons and have bunkers and have, you know, sort of agendas to try to who knows what really. I mean, I'm not involved in that world, but it's it's um, it just suggests that there's there's a broader agenda at play that isn't just about you know the you like toys i mean some people like guns because they're big violent machines you know that are fun to play with um but but there's something else at stake and that that other that other aspect of what's at stake is scary because it'll undermine the basis of our country other countries um have people with mental illness as well did you know that (laughs) What? Yeah. No. I, I know this yeah. Song, I, no, I, people you're out so there right. Listening to the probably saying he he's just saying things that just people should know. Well, it is. And it's he, so obvious, right? Every country has mental illness. It's it's just the way it is, man. You know. Yeah. And they don't say, oh, the answer to mental illness is more guns. They say the answer to mental illness is to give them help. Funding for people to to get we don't have that in the United States where people could just walk in and get help for, for mental illness and just give them guns on top of it. You know this is just ludicrous to me. It is ab- it is absolutely ludicrous, and you're getting at some of those larger structural issues in the U.S. too, yeah. where we where people can't access the help they need. They're 
the uh, limited social safety nets that we have have been chipped away, especially over the last um, 20 to 30 years. And so um, people are hurting and they can't get the help and support they need. Yeah, and, um, and COVID was a, was a perfect example. You know, people were getting COVID and they, they didn't have health care. Yeah. Could you believe this? Right. Well, they some people got overcharged for all sorts of COVID treatments. It was crazy. Yeah. You know, they were supposed to be covered by the government, but they weren't. I mean, the, you know, there were these were mistakes and or, um, you know, things that hospitals did, uh, maybe accidentally, maybe not. But it, but it, it just goes to show that when you don't have a comprehensive healthcare, you know, system for the country for people. All these sorts of like weird, bad stuff can happen. And, so, so, yeah. so the answer, you guys, <laughs> this is this is the answer: vote Republican because you you will have a, a better country. You'll have more health care. You'll have more, less racism and less homophobia. Uh, you, the, the prices will automatically go down because, as you know, the Republican Party can lower your prices, um, and the air will be cleaner. Am, am, I, am, am I getting? Are you guys getting? The <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Anyway, just thought I'd bring it up. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to I'm going to shift a little bit here to the uh, to Sumant's book. I know we talk about it a little bit here because I I looked at the synopsis about the book and it went completely over my head. So, uh, could you simplify it for me? What the uh, the ringtone dialectic is about? Yes, I'm happy to. So the book is basically about the rise and fall of the ringtone industry. There was a kind of moment when all of a sudden you could upload songs to your mobile phone and then companies, individuals, and then companies found ways to monetize that. Mm -hmm. And so the rise and fall of that process is kind of the story of the book and um why why do you think people stopped downloading ringtones well they 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 stopped for numerous reasons that um that i'll get to in a second once i sort of explain the rest of the the sort of basis of the book no it's okay um and so one of the things that i was trying to kind of i was interested in was that the as the ringtone changed in its music its sort of sonic format um it started off as a kind of very simple synthesizer file that would play little beeping melodies. And then, yeah, they were called monophonic ringtones. And then they ended up becoming more complex synthesizer files that were used the um, MIDI protocol, M-I-D-I, musical instrument digital interface. I think that's what that stands for. And then eventually they became audio files, like what this podcast is recorded on. And so that change led to big changes in terms of how the money that was involved in the exchange for the ringtone. So does it say what portions of the dollar or $2 or $3 that you were paying for a ringtone would go to whom? So there were some of it would go to the wireless company that was, you know, sort of organized the billing process. A lot of it would go to in the earlier cases, in the monophonic and polyphonic, a lot of it would go to the publishers. So people who published the songs that were being covered as a ringtone. But then when it became a sound file, 
the much more money went to the record labels because they owned the master recordings and they had a lot of power in that process. And so, so those changes, you know, sort of helped to drive the growth of the industry. Once the recording industry got more involved, then they really pushed the ringtone. And so in the U S it was kind of peaking around 2007, eight, nine, 10. I had ringtones. Yeah. Did you? No, I didn't. I didn't either. You just had the telephone ding. ding I just had uh, the whatever was on my phone. I, I, didn't. Have, I, I, I really didn't want to talk about this, but I'm going to say it really fast. I have a funny story about ringtones. Okay. I, as you know, I'm you know I, I'm a flight attendant, and um, during the time of ringtones, there uh, I thought it would be cool to have my ringtone be um, Donna Summer, Love to Love You. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you, I love you that song. I'm yeah. say. So, it, it, and it's the kind of song where ninety percent of it is moaning, right? It's more orgasmic kind of thing. Yeah. And if you haven't heard the song, then you're you're, you're too young to be listening to this. Anyway, <laughs> so um, I'm in the aisle. In the old days, we used to do a lot of manual demos. You know, we didn't have the screens. You know, where you can they showed the people doing it on the screen. You don't have to do a demo. You know. So I'm doing the seatbelt and, you know, the oxygen. And all of a sudden, my phone, I, I didn't realize my phone was still on. And it started playing. <laughs> Passengers would laugh. It was just really funny. I, I, anyway, funny. I thought it was funny to interject that little That's a great one. Anecdote. That is a good story. Well, Love to Love You Baby has become kind of a... a chestnut in the musicological literature. Uh, in fact, I just got a book in the mail yesterday by Danielle Sofer, who is a music scholar at the University of Dayton, I believe. And their book has a chapter on Love to Love You Baby. So, a whole chapter on it? I think so. Or a section, big section on it. Well, it was, yeah. it was revolutionary for the time. Yeah. Because, you know, you got to remember we lived in a very, you know, how would you say, a, a, a clean, repressed, you know, positive <laughs> kind of society, you know. Yeah, yeah we put that, thank you very much. See, he uses the, the right word. I mean, the TV, the TV uh, word. But, um, and when that song had come out, I remember my mother broke the record. She took it off the, the turntable wow. and broke oh. it. She said, you can't be listening to that. She was an old-fashioned Italian, yeah. you know, Catholic woman. And uh, so that was unheard of to hear a woman, you know, doing that on a record. So oh, it's uh, like... It's like pornography. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so, so Daniel Sofer's book is called Sex Sounds. So it's the idea of the oh. relationship between this recorded music and electronic experimental music and popular music and the way sex is all bound up with it. It's really wasn't, fascinating. Wasn't the story that she, they put her in a room with a red light and they, they told her like to think about she, that she's having sex and... But they took the lights off. But she said she thought about her kid or ba having a baby or something. I remember reading. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a whole other part of the story that's really interesting. Anyway, I haven't read Danielle's book yet, so I have to do that. But okie dokie. Well, um, now it's Beth's turn. Okay. Um, uh, a few years back, you had. Okay, so again, we're friends, right? Yes. I think we still are. Yep. And, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I heard you took a deep dive into burlesque. Like you. you wanted to study it as a, as yeah. a, a, a genre, I guess is the term. Exactly. Uh, can yeah. you tell our listeners what your findings were and what the most interesting thing you learned about burlesque was? Sure. I will try anyway. There's a lot to say, but I did indeed. Well, you could like 
I'll milk it I'll down. distill it. I'll distill it. But I did uh, I did end up doing a deep dive into burlesque. It was the um, a pretty big component of my dissertation project when I was in graduate school. Oh, okay. And I um, I'm a musician, so I was just really interested in. Um, like thinking about this book that Tumont just told us about, the just the sounds of striptease, what kind of music goes with striptease, what other um, sonic phenomenon um, are involved um, or emerge. And I, I guess some of my main findings were just that there's, well, a wide variety of music that people um, draw upon, especially in what's been referred to as the burlesque revival, which started in the late 90s uh, on the coast in the U.S. and was happening elsewhere throughout the world as well um, and has continued in, into uh, into uh, the contemporary moment. Um, but people really use music um, as, as, a, as a way to uh, not only support their sort of striptease practices but express something that seems to be important to themselves as well. Uh, and, and it's just, yeah, I think maybe... A big uh, takeaway is just that there's there's so much music one can strip to, really. Oh yeah. Um, and I uh, <laughs> there was a song um, when I was young called "The Stripper," right? Uh, who, who, um, David Rose. Dave, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. You're, yeah. Scared me, girl. <laughs> <laughs> David Rose. Yeah. That song was the the ultimate strip. But see, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't burlesque classy though compared to what we do we see in strip clubs today i mean it's more like raw i think back then it was an art wasn't it like they dance special they had these little you know beads that they wore and and they had tassels on their uh, tops and the pasties and the tassels yeah well i mean that's something I i got really curious about um and i think um one thing that that it it is important um um to recognize is that burlesque and what we would you know consider more modern day sort of erotic dancing that might happen in a strip club or gentlemen's clubs as I referred to they have the same historical roots and they actually are much more related than um, than not and mm-hmm. that's something in my uh, research that I was really trying to think through um, what does and doesn't count as art and artistic expression what does and doesn't count as work and really, um, really trying to push against some of those separ- that, that the separation between sort of club dancing, and then that, um, and then the, the burlesque revival. They were happening in different spaces, but actually are much more related than totally. not. Okay. Yeah, but, but, and but, but, but like the, the the girls you see today, like in modern uh, uh, gentlemen's clubs, they do this pole routine. Which right, I don't yeah. think was in existence with burlesque, was it? Uh, or That's was correct. It? Yeah. So if we no. go back to the early 20th century roots of burlesque, they did not have poles at that time. Poles came into being. Um, it's hard to know exactly, but right. um, late 70s, early 80s in clubs, and that was a shift from some of these bigger um, kind of theatrical productions to nightclubs around mid 20th century, uh-huh. um, and then the um, the invention, I guess, of the gentleman's club model in the 70s, where there was very much this aspirational quality of, of trying to um, give a sense of luxury for mostly um, 
male customers. Uh, and then we do see changes in terms of um, performance practices, changes in costuming, changes in um, music as well. Um, but um, And now I just lost my train of thought. What was it that you asked me? <laughs> no, about the, 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 uh, the differences between the pole dancing. Right, that's it. Yeah, poles. So, yeah. yeah, so poles didn't um, uh, always and everywhere exist. They did have a historical moment, and right. they still exist today. And and now there are offshoots um, related to that as well. well you know, the, the, so there are people who take pole classes and who compete in pole competitions. And so that was yeah, part I was of my... Say that. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's become like an art now. I mean, you have to be very gymnastical. Is that a word? Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. athletic yeah, yeah. to do some of these things. I and mean, they're going upside down and climbing it takes, just their knees, some of, some of these moves. Yeah, they yeah. don't touch the pole at all they're just using all leg muscles and it takes an incredible amount of strength and part of my yes. when i was um uh doing research for my dissertation i did take pole classes and it was it was incredibly did difficult did you, very did, very were difficult you able to do it without your hands i got to some uh some <laughs> tricks where i could do that but it, it's really really hard and that's something that uh, i wanted yeah through my work to really stress too that when we um when people try to separate something like a pole class which is you know exercise or entertainment for um often for middle class folks who aren't doing it for a living um that it's really important to bring that back to the the erotic dance roots and really show that um individuals who are working in that industry have a lot of skill they have a lot of talent and it is hard work mm-hmm. um and so that was another piece and probably Something um, that I, I don't know if it was surprising, but something that, um, that was something I, I wanted to stress in my, in my project. I think, I think yeah. too, that um, when we think of it, um, it, is an, it is a talent um, because, again, uh, when you go back to maybe the, the 60s, when you think of stripping and stuff, it was just like, you know, like David Rose is playing, the, you know, the stripper. And then she's just taking one layer off at a time. And she's just dancing. And it was more like a, a dance routine. Whereas today, it's become like a, like an Olympic sport. I mean, they're just spinning around. And, and yeah. so I was going to ask you the follow-up question to that. Um, let's go into the LGBT community. Now, I remember as growing up, Going, when I first started coming out, uh, going to clubs when I was in my teens and early 20s, there were uh, men stripping as well. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. And, has male, and all I remember them doing is going down to the G-string and then people would put money and mm. they would just wiggle their, their stuff a little bit. Has it progressed? The, do, you, do you know anything about the, the LGBT, the, the gay male uh, side of the... Um, equation yeah well um I, I would say just based on my own um experiences going to shows and then participating in them too i think there are people um of all different genders who participate in something like burlesque and then historically too um male male strippers too uh and so i think it's really um it's it's pretty incredible to see the different um people who are drawn to something like like burlesque and drag too, there's a lot of overlap, especially oh, really? um, do, in do shows. Do drag queens actually strip? There are, Some yes, do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would yeah. Love to see that. yeah. It's yeah. really, awesome. it's really. I think it's just. 
I think it's wonderful, and 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 I think um, burlesque and drag are are very important to um, to the queer community and a place where people can um, can really um, feel like they can express themselves and show a different part of themselves. And I don't mean just in terms of taking off layers of clothing. Um, and that's it's where just, I think, it, yeah, it's an yeah. art. I think, yeah, yeah. It is. isn't it? I mean, I totally. think people. Um, I, I guess the way you to me, I think it's the way you're raised. You know, if you're raised like you know, you have to you know uh, to be very humble and very you know demure and all that. This would be something you couldn't deal with. But you got to remember, people you know want to express themselves in different ways. And if we are a truly free country, we should be able to do that. Yeah, you know, I, agree. I think that's the issue here. Like the way they're curbing back women's rights and gay rights and this rights and that rights and instead of if you're supposed to be the quote unquote. They, they hate us for our freedom. You, might, you, know, you hear yeah. people say that. If you're not truly, you're not truly free if you can't express yourself the way you want to be expressed. You're not hurting anybody. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Does surface hurt your feelings? Yeah. All right. These are <laughs> victimless crimes, right? right. If they're outlawed. You know, yeah. I'm going to say yeah. something a little. Uh, maybe you can jump in on this because again, burlesque. Uh, then we can transition into uh, 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 you know prostitution. Uh, it's a profession that's been dated back to time immemorial and who's the victim i would like to know can you guys tell me who the victim of that crime would be since it is a crime oh which well prostitution who's the victim there well yeah and and um so i certainly am just following what i have learned from um sex workers and sex worker activists Mm. um who really see sex work as work and that it is labor that needs to be protected and uh that when we um go to the the sort of moralizing place um it's also it it just adds to stigmatization it's dehumanizing um it doesn't uh allow for workers to access the same resources um and and in the u.s um sex work is criminalized and um that of that creates a whole host of issues for people trying to um trying to do their jobs and trying to survive and so in terms of yeah a, a, a victimless crime is the right uh, i guess uh, yeah the, I, it's a question mark of who is the victim here and i think the whole framing of sex work as um in as trafficking or as um as lacking um, people lacking volition or agency to make choices that are best for themselves is um, is an ongoing ongoing issue and one that needs to get more attention. I would say. I agree, yeah. and, and and I remember going to Amsterdam when I was doing international flying back in the day, and it was you know the government regulated it. So in other words, you had a health department taking care of these women, making sure that they were getting tested, they were they were um, using protection, they were. Uh, you know, they were able to see doctors. Uh, um, it was it was all about freedom for that woman to do what she feels for herself works. Just like when, it, when we talk about abortion, not every woman's going to have an abortion, but it's that open that choice. It's leaving the door open, saying you don't have to do it. I get it. You don't like that. Fine. I'm, I you don't want to be a prostitute. That's fine. I agree. I don't want to do it either. But. Some people don't have a problem with that. And why would you care 
that they're doing. Does that make sense? It does. Well, one of the things that's really strange about this to me is that anytime you take a job and you have an employer, you, you know, at some level, you're selling your body over to that employer to do the work they want you to do. They want you to use your body and your mind in the ways that they want you to. And law, the law gives you certain protections as an employee, but not that many. And so they have quite a lot of say over what you do with yourself, with your body and your mind in the workplace. And so how different is it really from other form from sex work? Right. And I think that's one of the things that I think people make this division between it because they have this moral idea about what is and isn't you know appropriate or and and the idea of the like you know woman as victim which then you know sort of plays into kind of melodramatic ideas about you know like the sort of uh you know essentially the the weaker sex or what have you like these these are sort of the images that play in the minds of of people who you know who don't think about sex work in a more, you know, nuanced and open way. I have one exception to, to what I would think it would be wrong. Um, I, and I'm sure you know this. There are some women who are coerced into it through these uh, pimps. Sure. If you don't, uh, you have to continue to, see, that's where I draw the line. If it's coercion, it's not good. It has to be the woman's choice to me. She wants to do it. Hey, good. But if she decides, I want to get out now, I'm done. I have the money I need. I'm going to school. Goodbye. Have a nice life. I think they should be able to leave. And a lot of them are coerced to stay in and they're threatened. And so what do you think of that? Well, uh, but cl- we clearly that? that's not a, that's not a good thing. Uh, obviously. And um, there I think there's... Take, you know, help these women? And is there something that we could do as a society? Maybe pass a law? I don't know. Maybe you have an idea. Yeah, I guess there... And, and here I'm just following following in the footsteps of of sex workers uh advocates and and activists who are saying that criminalization is a huge problem um in assuming that everyone is a victim is a huge problem um coercion of course shouldn't happen um people who don't want to do um who who don't want to um be in those situations should be able to get out absolutely, absolutely. but it isn't um like if the coercion is involved it is not it's not sex work. Yeah, and I think there's this... Slavery. this allu- becoming, you know, uh, you're being forced to do something against your will. It's, 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 it's servitude. Uh, it's wrong. It's, it's horrible. And women should... If a woman says, you know what? I enjoyed the time I had with you. Have a nice life. Goodbye. I'm going. She shouldn't be... Her life shouldn't be threatened. She shouldn't be... I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your kids. I'm going to do this. This stuff has to, this is where I, I, I lose it with that. But uh, like I said, when it came to Amsterdam, those women there were protected by the government. I should looked out for them. They well, had health care. They had doctor visits. They uh, were regulated by the government to make sure that they were safe. Yeah. You know, well, I was just going to say, I think um, it's really important um, in general, to listen to the people, to listen to sex workers, to listen to what they need. And um, in a country like the U.S. where sex work is criminalized, it's really hard um, yes. for it because because what they do is criminalized. It's much, much harder yeah, because, for their voices yeah. to be heard. And I but um, based on um, 
you know, again, based on the activists whom I follow, um, we just we absolutely need to decriminalize um, sex work in this country. And yeah. that, in effect, will help the actual um, uh, victims women, who yeah. who the real victims of um, use the word trafficking, but it's also a problematic word. Um, but people who don't, um, who again don't want to be in those situations. Um, but they there's so much um, uh, there's so much conflation of some of these terms, and it in and um, and then in terms of the um, the the laws in place in the U.S., it is absolutely not helping sex workers by any stretch of the imagination. And in terms of 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 victims who do want to get out, it's not helping them either. So we need we need um, we need to decriminalize. We need to destigmatize, and to have more yeah. open conversations um, about um, about topics that that often get pushed to the side, and it's all bound up with a lot of other um, issues concerning gender and sexuality well, in this country. Well, too. thank you guys for talking about your careers and um, your, your your band and uh, these these things that are so important in society. Um, but we've come to a specific part of the show. Okay. Okay. What it's called? <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> part of the show. I like to call the shift. Ta da! Okay. Where I shift the questioning away from your careers and into a discussion on current events that may or may not pertain to your expertise. Is that okay? You guys agree with that? Yes. Sure. For that? Okay. And we already went into um, guns, so we'll, we can um, uh, skip that one. Um, but and I know your your ideas on that, and we we really need to do something about that. That's just my, that's my number one thing now. I, I, I can't watch people getting mowed down like animals. It's just, it's, I'm, I'm losing it right now. I can't. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. People do something. Vote, vote, vote. Anyway, yeah. uh, and I'm sure you're both aware that the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And I'm sure your students will mention it when you go back to school in September or whenever you do go back. Uh, what are the dangers American women now face because of this decision? We're going to start with Miss Beth, obviously, because she is a woman that can speak of better than me and Sumanth can, or Sumanth and I. <laughs> well, um, uh, it's I, I, we, I think we knew it was coming, um, and those, yes. um, and again, not my area of expertise but um but no, those but those um those yeah. you know there have been um uh, abortion rights advocates who've been working on on these issues for years and and could see the way that um abortion rights have been chipped away at and so and then with the leaked um court document we knew i guess we knew it was coming i will say it still surprised me how awful it felt when um when it was finalized, uh, and we, we, uh, the media uh, highlighted uh, this this breaking story. Um, in terms of the dangers to um, American women, I guess I would say any like pregnant people, especially um, uh, poor people, people of color. It's yeah. absolutely going to, rich women are going impact to them, them the most. Regardless. Donald Trump's next mistress is going to be able to get that abortion. Trust me. Don't worry about her. She's fine. But it'd be a woman who is raped by her uncle 
or uh, some poor woman who uh, is, you know, has a, a babysitter raped her child, or we don't know. There's a million, a myriad of things that could happen to some to a young woman or or a woman in twenty. It doesn't matter the age. Actually, I shouldn't even say the age. Um, and isn't it? Don't you think it's kind of a way of for men in the upper echelon and the powers that be to control women? Isn't that part of what it is? Or yeah. Yes, I would say I so. Can't and think I think of another um, reason why you would care because uh, you don't have to get the abortions the woman. So what you're a man, you don't give birth. What do you care? You know. And and, and, and people think of it as just like uh, oh, she just carry the baby for 9 months and then, you know, go, you know, go to work and take you know, could you I don't know. This is another thing that I'm thinking about. and I don't think people are really bringing this up very much. If you're a 10-year-old girl or an 11-year-old girl who gets raped or something happens to her, can you? do you think it's fair to let a girl that age go through nine months of pregnancy watching an 11-year-old, 10-year-old girl give birth? Is this what we're coming to? I mean... It's... No, it's... Um... Words, words, I guess words, words fail me in some ways, but, um, but I just think people, it's a medical decision and that, um, between the doctor and the woman, right. And it just, it's, it shouldn't, uh, it should be left up to, to an individual to make those decisions. And, um, isn't the 14th amendment about privacy? Why is the Supreme, I'm going to ask you this because now we're going to go into privacy. Why? Why is that not a private decision between the woman and her doctor? It should be. I mean, one of the things that I think is at play in this is the discourse of fetal personhood. And um, I was just listening to the radio earlier this morning about all of the weird consequences that are going to that are that fall out of if the doctrine of fetal personhood becomes legalized and it's sort of implicit it's it's central to the abortion anti-abortion movement it's um implicit and or as a possibility in the future of you know what the court might do and what the rulings against abortion might mean and all of these weird things come out of it and this i i don't know the name of the the scholar who was speaking about it but it was really fascinating and horrific i mean they were saying things like well Someone might go to a state where they would apply, have, you know, have abortion rights in order to get an abortion. But if you don't get an abortion, you might go to a state where, you know, you're you could claim your fetus as a dependent on your taxes. And so there are just like all these sorts. There's a lot of like consequences. I didn't think about it either. And I thought, wow, that's really weird. And and this person was saying this kind of inconsistent definition of personhood is not tenable. And in fact, the last time we had something like that was before the end of slavery. Right. Because in different states, different people were people or not people. And that's that's the whole point of the 14th Amendment to kind of clarify that, you know, you're a person when you're born. Right? Isn't it yeah. a breathing, living, breathing? Di- I mean, the, the the people on the Supreme Court right now. I I, I lose that use that term loosely. These, this, I don't know. Um, Supremacist court. <laughs> and it's funny how they they would the three of them the the Trump appointees were all chosen by a minority of voters. If you think about that, he lost by millions of votes the first time he ran. And he lost by millions of votes the second time he ran. But we have three people who 
are making decisions for the majority. Now, is that fair? <laughs> I never thought of, when you think about that, yeah, it's, it's frightening that you have this small minority of people um, that are able to rule the majority of people who don't really believe that. Even people that are anti-abortion say, you know what, there are certain instances when I think it should be, like ectopic pregnancy, for example, right. where a woman, if she gives birth or if, if this baby grows in her tubes or whatever, she, she could die, yeah. you know, and, that's, and that exception is not in a lot of the laws that are out there now, right, Beth? Am I right? Well, I'm, I'm not a legal expert again, but I think you're getting at some some of the larger issues related to this, the the fact that um, that the majority of people um, in this country uh, do indeed support Roe v. Wade. Oh, yeah. um, same thing goes with um, with gun control, with uh, reasonable gun control. There's there's something really broken um, in our system if the majority of of, of folks voices are not being adequately represented, yeah. um, and that the Supreme Court can be so uh, so incredibly skewed uh, mm -hmm. in one direction. I think that's really, it's something that um, certainly troubles me. Yeah, it troubles me. And, and I want to ask uh, Sumant this follow-up question to um, um, the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade. Now, as you mentioned to me, I think we talked about this before we started the interview, about uh, Clarence Thomas and his dissent, I mean, his um his opinion, it wasn't a dissent, I wish it was, um, where he said that now we can look into Obergfeld and we can look into other things like birth control and things like that, but he, he, he conveniently left out the, uh, the ruling on uh, uh, interracial marriage because he's in a inter yes, interracial yes. marriage. Yeah. Isn't it funny how they, they, how they mold it to, 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 just to themselves, you know, instead of thinking of the wide country as a whole, you know. What do you think of, what, do you think that's the next step is uh, birth control uh, is next and marriage equality? It's, it's totally possible. I think it's scary to imagine that they would actually continue their rampage on regulation and on private citizens' rights um, and on, you know, federal law and returning things to states so that certain states can have you know, basically anti-democratic um, laws more than other states. Um, it's so it's going to be like slavery was in the Civil War. Right. It feels, it feels like states. we're, yeah, it feels like yeah, we're moving slavery. to something like that. And the, the irony of all of this, and we're learning this, we're both reading a book by the political scientist uh, Corey Robin, who wrote in 2019 a book on Clarence Thomas. And it um, it treats, it's a sort of close reading of his judicial opinions and positions. And I think many people have treated him as stupid. And I think that that's, or and oh, no. that there's no, he's definitely not. Diabolical. Yeah. Well, I think so too. And one of the things that's really interesting in, mm. in Corey Robbins reading is that how central a conservative strain of black nationalism and the belief in the omnipresence of racism are central to how he interprets uh, so many different cases. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, it's, it's surprising. And one of the things Robin says is, you know, you as a, if you are a progressive reader, you will be surprised at how much you agree with Clarence Thomas. And I think that that's really, it's really interesting. And I, I, it, it should give us pause. Maybe we need to think 
more critically about the things we assume. Maybe, you know, racism, in his view, is basically thought of as permanent, you know, like it's never going away. And lots of other people on the left think that, too. Um, maybe we need to think about and figure out a way to imagine a world where, you know, race is understood as the made up garbage concept that it is. I mean, cultures are real languages and, you know, ways of living are real. Certainly differences of how your bodies look and skin colors or whatever. Those are real. But is race real? You know, it's that's that's, I think, one of the things that we we at our peril assume if we don't you know, pay attention to the way that sometimes the most important concepts that we draw upon in our own critical analysis can be, you know, flipped on the, you know, on their head and turned as a weapon against, you know, democracy and against equality and fairness. And like, but I, like I said before, with, um, with that decision of, for Roe versus, uh, with Roe versus Wade, um, it was based, the original Supreme Court in 73 was 72, was it 72, 73? They based it on uh, the 14th Amendment because they said it's a privacy issue. It's between the woman and her doctor and it's between the woman and her family and whoever, you know, and the government should be stepping in. So um, it was and then it was now they're saying it's states rights issue. So do certain states have uh, don't have privacy with their doctor? I mean, it's kind of I thought the Constitution was written for the entire country, not we have state constitutions, yes we do, we do yeah. but we also have one to protect against the uh, the um, how would you say it the the the, the villainry or the the, the the evilness of of certain states who want to uh, treat people differently and 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 subjugate them in, in certain ways, and I think um, a woman that lives in Kentucky should have the same rights as a woman that lives in Minnesota. I mean, right? I, I mean, think so, yeah. Why should she have to t- get on a bus or a plane or whatever and t- just to to exercise her right as a human being? I don't know. I This is this issue that's going to go on and on and on. And, and marriage equality, obviously, it's going to affect me. And I, I discussed it with my husband, and he's, he literally said if it, if it happens, we have to leave the country. Because mm-hmm. if we're not married in the United States, what, 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 what the, what's... It's dehumanizing if you think about it. I mean, it's like Absolutely. you will, I'll have different rights than you do. Yeah, you know, think about that for any for a second, just a second. Think about one person that's in a relationship will have. Uh, well, you two aren't married, but if you were, you you have the right to be, and they'll never take that away from you. Mm-hmm. But I unless they bring back interracial, uh, like that's I mean, but Clarence right. Thomas is there. Don't worry about it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're good. He's <laughs> he's saving me. But anyway, finally, <laughs> the current Supreme Court is one of the most activist courts, as I talk, uh, talked about before. You know, attacking civil liberties and separation of church and state, the whole thing. Now um, there was they did uh, they had two other decisions that were. Monumental, in my opinion, there was the um, uh, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, which is about a coach calling his team to pray in a public school setting. We'll start with that one. Um, where do we draw the line? Are we going to are we going to be able to put prayer shawls for Muslims in public schools and have them praying in the fifty yard line too? Is that going to be okay for some Christians? You know, 
I mean, where did, I thought we were people came here to escape uh, establishment of religion. Um, what do you think, Sumant, about that? Well, I mean, I guess what I what I think is I want to see Satanists actually. Um, oh God, everybody you know, said that. Yeah, yeah, this has been a big joke that's been going around. Wicked, but it's doing yeah, wicked. Yeah, in the, in right. The exactly. I mean, I just think the whole thing is absurd. <laughs> I and, mean, where do we yeah. draw the line? You yeah. said freedom of religion. You know, yeah. in a public school. Right. Exactly. You know, everybody has different beliefs. And also, I, it makes me wonder: Should we start classifying more of our daily activities and beliefs as religions you know i'm a leftist marxist i mean there are frankly religious elements to marxism but um should i just call it a religion and then do i have right to kind of like you know at the 50 yard line you know talk about the class struggle and you know inequality maybe i should and i i think again that these things atheism are atheism is a religion yeah. if you think about it atheism it's, it's is a religion sure. yeah. yeah it may not be established actually you can go to there are organizations now for atheists to yeah. go and agnostics so it is basically a belief system yeah so where is their exercise of freedom if, the, if you're telling a team to pray at the 50-yard line, and you're an atheist, where's your freedom there, Beth? What do you think? Well, I think that? you're getting at the the Reason. large... The, yeah, yeah, you're getting at the, the key thing here, which is, in this case, they're only... Um, Imagining that this that Christians are going to be the ones who are praying at the 50-yard line, and that... Right, people. and that... And, um, and we can also see how that... It can very well be weaponized too, and how um, if you're not Christian and that oh you can just opt out, how that immediately singles you out as not Christian, exactly. and how incredibly pop- problematic that is. Um, but yeah, the, I think all the memes we're seeing floating around, everybody saying, "Well, let's get Satanists at the fifty-yard line." Let's like it's just it's. It's, it's clearly not what they intended, but when you open the doors, the it's door. then this, it's That's like... That's why we established the separation of church and state. Exactly. Right. These yeah. people are going to be very, very disappointed when they start seeing other religions doing stuff in their school, public, public schools. If you want to go to a Catholic school or a Christian school, you have every right to send your child there. There's no, nobody's stopping you. But in a public school, we have different kinds of people, different with different belief systems and different backgrounds and the whole deal. And I don't see how you can make everybody happy with just one person praying a certain religious prayer at the fifty-yard line. You're gonna you're gonna be upsetting certain people, you know. Yeah. Anyway, right. and the second yeah. the second uh, this is the last one question of, of the inter- oh, I feel sad because I like <laughs> talking to you guys. Um, West Virginia versus the EPA. So, you the, the government agency created by, by Republicans uh, Nixon uh, yeah. uh, cannot regulate uh, pollutants in the air. Isn't that an amazing thing when you think about this? So now, uh, what, if you think about it. Look at all the asthmatics in this country. I can't remember. Every time I hear about somebody, they, they have asthma now. Who knows what they're spewing into this, into our air and water? Um, what do you guys feel about that really quick on the EPA? And uh, so much. I mean, I think it's a total insanity that you can't actually allow Congress 
to or to designate an expert agency (laughs) to issue regulations and uh, and enforce them i mean that just basically guts the capacity of the government to do its everyday work i mean the congress people don't have the expertise that you know that agencies uh, you know people went to college and studied for years about the air and and uh, all this stuff and you're gonna gonna let marjorie taylor green control your environment I mean, I mean, it's sickening when you think about it. But just oh, think yeah. think of how, like, workplace regulations could be undone. I mean, all sorts oh, of, like, yeah. you know, housing and building regulations. I mean, so many things could be undone because of this. Yes. And it just seems kind of, it seems like, to me, total lunacy. Uh, it also, um, I Not know that. to you, believe me. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I think we all and feel that way. It just, and in terms of the environment, I mean, you know, it's true that, our country is struggling with how to balance, you know, the incredibly pressing, urgent need to come to some kind of, you know, sustainability before, you know, we burn up on this, you know, blue sphere. But um, if, uh, and to basically, you know, say that those struggles mean that you, that they have to work themselves out in Congress, well, I just think we'll, we'll basically, will be left, you know, without a habitable country and world if we don't do something. The US is the US is one of the most, you know, major polluters in the world, you know? So we have to China and the US. Yeah. I mean, and I also think just by principle, I mean, you, there needs to be some place for expertise and 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 agencies that have it to designate the work of Congress. You can't expect the Congress to have all that. So I just think logically, yeah. and then in terms of politically, That's it's really urgent. That's why we have the EPA. That's yeah. the reason. Uh, you know, and, and, and obviously the, the the third decision was that uh, that they're telling the state of New York, who they talk about states' rights, that they can't regulate guns in their own state. Right, because the second amendment. Isn't it crazy? I mean, we have a very sick court, and I think if people don't go out and vote this November, or even, you know, uh, for your, um, what do you call it? Um, Uh, Midterms. Caucuses, you know. Well, yeah, the the primaries. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that, and you complain about the way your life is, then you, then you you need to, you know, see where you have to go. Because there's no way... I will be home and not vote this year. This is probably more critical than the Trump vote was. Well, yeah, equal. it's really important. Yeah, it's very important. It seems and like democracy. I think what people, I just wanted to democracy. say this. Well, yes. it's like democracy is an unfinished project. You know, we we don't have a fully dem- democratic country. We have these weird uh, apportionments, the electoral right. college and the Senate and, the and then state, you know, state gerrymandering and all sorts of things that basically. Imagine uh, how wonderful know, the country would be, though. If we had a more democratic, if yeah. The people actually yeah. voted, and the majority of the people in each state, regardless of what state they live in, whether it's Wyoming or California, your vote counts equally rather than Wyoming people, their vote counts 10 million times stronger than a Californian's yeah. vote. It's crazy. But anyway, we're running really long. But I just want to thank you both for sharing your time with us on the Downright Upright show today. You thank you. Happy, yeah, happy thank you so yes, much for having thank us. Thank you so much for having Wasn't us. It fun? It's, it's really always fun. A it's fun always so great to, to hang out to with you. you. <laughs> well, I love you, I love you too. Love you too. Bias, so. uh, but you know, the thing is, we're gonna we could do this again sometime. We could sure. Do, sure. 
you know, go into different subjects because I'm sure other crazy things are going to happen in the a next lot. few years. There's a lot. And, yeah. Um, oh, and one more thing. And to our listeners, I'd like to thank them as well for spending time with us today. And please stay tuned for more podcasts in the future. And oh, are we going to talk about the gated? Finish uh, with the gated community's information. Uh, for more information on the gated community online, and their music is amazing. So you guys love, go see them. Go out there and see them. And uh, where's your next show, by the way? Really quick. Do you have anything planned coming up, or are you guys Dude. on a hiatus? We're- August twenty second in for. For those in, in the Twin town. Cities. Yeah, there's a show on Monday, August 22nd. Uh, it's a free show at the, uh, I think it's 6 p.m. at the in the Lexington Hamlin neighborhood in St. Paul. Okay, and they, can, uh, they can go on your website. So that's what I'm going to do. It's yeah. www.thegatedcommunityband.com. So it's T-H-E-G-A-T-E-D-C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y-B-A-N-D.com. Yeah, right? and That's they can right. also email us at thegatedcommunity at gmail.com if they want to get in touch. What's wrong? What is that? Just thegatedcommunity, the name at gmail.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you guys again. And, thank you, uh, Philip. This thank is Philip Anthony wishing everyone a great day and hope to see you soon on the next podcast.